Bibles to the book of Job, the book of Job. And as you open the scriptures, let me simply say to you, I hate to wait. I think I've said this before, but it's just come back to my uh, life with uh, even more power and force. My idea of torture is standing in a line that doesn't appear to be moving for five minutes. You know, under five minutes, that's a trial. Over five minutes, that's torture. I just hate to wait, yet I'm forced to do it several times every week, sometimes in the grocery checkout line when someone has 15 items in the line where you're only supposed to have 10. Going through a fast food drive through where they are endlessly training something, someone new who doesn't understand the system. Going to the bank and finding myself in front of the guy who is cashing out a bunch of pennies. I hate to wait. Maybe my worst problem is in traffic. I've mentioned this before, but traffic just drives me up a wall. And it's the one thing that can re reveal my lack of sanctification maybe faster than anything else. Traffic. People don't understand how important my agenda is. Um, people do not understand what a turning signal is. A and I cannot let it go by without some comment, my wife knows. I've even invented a song for people who drive as though they're the only people in the world. And it sounds something like that, I'm the only person in the world. It changes tunes, words are always the same, and I sing it whenever I'm cut off in traffic or whenever someone displays the fact that they have no realization that the rest of us exist. It's okay for me to drive that way, but not for them. <laughs> I hate to wait. And yet, to be honest with you, all the waiting that I've just talked about is rather insignificant and inconsequential, isn't it? Kind of superficial. There's a far more acute waiting that many people have to endure. Like the childless couple waiting to conceive. Or the single person longing to be married, waiting for a mate. The emotionally scarred person waiting for some tranquility in their spirit. The unhappy marriages, couple waiting for relief. The lonely waiting to belong. The bereaved waiting for joy. Or the chronically ill waiting for health. Or even death. That's the book of Job. The chronically ill, waiting for health. Or, as he said time and time again, Lord, just let me die. In our text this morning, coming out of the book of Job, chapter 14 has this concept of waiting. I will wait for my renewal. I will wait for that time when I will be made over, when my circumstances will be transformed, I will wait. Learning to wait, that's the book of Job. It's a theme that I want to pull out of the book of Job this morning and uh, cause us to examine and meditate on a little bit and hopefully grow in our understanding of it. It's interesting the way we use that word wait. It's in many of our expressions. 
right? Sometimes it's a threat. Just you wait, someone will say to you. Or how about this one? Wait till you see this. Excitement about a new discovery. To the impatient, we say, wait and see, which is hard for us to do. To the person who seems to be filled with trouble and about ready to cause issues all around them, we say that they are an accident waiting to happen. Or those who are longing for some type of change, maybe in their life, a dream that hasn't been realized, feel they feel that they're living their lives simply waiting in the wings, never a moment on stage. It's interesting, is it not, how often we use the word waiting in our expressions in the English language, and interesting as to how often this word is used in our English Bibles as well. It is the heart of the book of Job. For Job, a righteous, blameless man, not perfect, a man who honored God and walked with the Lord because of no sin of his own, is going through a horrible time of testing. He is suffering untold trials, losing all of his possessions, losing all of his family, now losing his health, and he longs simply to die, wishing he had never been born, and now his life is one long wait. If you ask me, how come the book of Job is so long? I might answer to you because waiting takes so long. Job is waiting and at times has no hope of realizing any change, but then occasionally a little spark, a, a little glimmer of hope is seen on the horizon like we have in chapter 14. Now before we get to our text, let's look at a little bit of background in the book of Job. And I want to start uh, with, uh, well actually before that, James chapter 5 is the one verse in the New Testament that throws us back to this Old Testament story of Job. And it's because of his patience. Whatever else Job learns, whatever he experiences, the dominant lesson at least from James, from James's perspective, is this idea of patience. You want to learn patience? Look at Job. And by the way, not only does he reflect patience in horrible suffering, but notice this verse says, in the end, the Lord finally brought vindication. Two vital points. Learn how to wait and understand that in the end, God will vindicate you. That's what James 5.10 says. So let's get the background now starting with Job chapter 12. And I don't know if it was stated to you in our temporariness of technology. Uh, our back screen is not working. So I will constantly be turning to see if there's anything on the screen. Job chapter 12 says, doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. I love this. Uh, after Zophar speaks, the third of Job's three friends, his speech is found in chapter 11. And by the way, he says, says some amazing things. 
Verse 7, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than the heavens. What can you do? Those are good words, solid words, which simply remind us that the three friends often say the right thing, but misapply it to Job. Or they take the right theology and quickly, through reason and logic, come to the wrong conclusion. God punishes sin. God is punishing you. You must have sinned. And that's their logic, the three friends with Job. So what's Job's response? He's tired of answering them. So he says in verse 2, doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. That's called sarcasm, by the way. It's interesting how often the Bible uses sarcasm. The prophet Elijah used it with the prophets of Baal. The Apostle Paul uses it when he's dealing with uh, some of the Judaizers or uh, whoever he's arguing with. Sarcasm is biblical. The problem is I don't know when to use it. Whenever I use it, I always get in trouble. I try to use it, but it just doesn't seem to work. But Job is now so frustrated with these guys that he reverts to sarcasm. He, re- he basically says in verse 3, everything you say, everyone knows. But then he adds this statement in chapter 12, verse 9. And this is an important concept that you and I need to grasp. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Which of these refers to all the people on the earth and even the animals on the earth? He mentions in verse 7 of chapter 12. That is, every living creature knows that God has a hand in all of this. I bring this up because this is an important lesson that we don't want to miss in the book of Job. We learned it in chapter 1. It was repeated in chapter 2. It will be the conclusion in chapter 42 that God has done this. In chapter 1, when Job lost all of his possessions and his family, he said, naked came I from the womb, naked I'll go back to the earth. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Who gives? The Lord. Who takes away? The Lord. In chapter 2, when he lost his health, his wife said, curse God and die. And he said, shall we not receive good things from the Lord and evil things? Who sends the good things? The Lord. Who sends the bad things? The Lord, Job says. (laughs) Now, God is not the author of sin. But I do want you to know that God is in sovereign control of the universe and nothing happens without his approval that's what we learn in the first two chapters God is sovereign in chapter 42 when Job is finally given uh, blessings again he states it is stated clearly that the bad things the difficult things the trials came from the Lord it's repeated again and now here it is in chapter 12 verse 9 who doesn't know That God's in control. Now, if you don't think God's in control, 
you're going to change your view of God if you believe that uh, this world is so bad and God can't control it. You're, you're going to think that either God is not good or God is not sovereign. And you'll begin to manipulate the theology of God based on what you observe among men. That is always a bad practice. Never doubt in the dark what you know in the light. And the light of God's word tells us he is sovereign. So we've got to somehow understand this in another way. Maybe it's because we sinned and rebelled against God and went into depravity. The world is corrupt. But still, that doesn't answer all the questions. Somehow, and we learn this from Job, that God, in the mystery of his wisdom, allows bad things to happen to good people. So Job is not suffering because of his sin. And yes, he, he's experiencing horrible trials. And he's got to learn how to wait upon the Lord. That is what is so challenging. Notice verse 10 says, in God's hand, there is life. The life of every creature. He controls it. The breath of all mankind. This is the one philosophy that is being attacked in our academies, in every university that is not based on Christ. They're attacking this philosophy that God is and that God controls. And every believer who understands their Bible says God is, and God is in control. So we've got to remind ourselves of that, and it is important in the whole plot of the book of Job, to understand that God is not the one who is hurrying about heaven, wondering how he can make order out of chaos. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how this got away. I don't know how the devil did what he did. I'm, I'm beside myself. No, that's not God. He knows exactly what he's doing, for he is in control. Now, we go on to chapter 13. I just have to add this verse because I think it's so good. Job says, you guys, smear me with your lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. He calls them lousy counselors in another place. And then he adds this. If only you would be altogether silent for you, that would be wisdom. <laughs> Here again, sarcasm comes into play. Remember his friends came out of compassion to help Job and sat with him for a week and said what? Nothing, and that was the high point. They opened their mouth, and they just added burden upon burden. What is it, the, the famous statement of Abraham Lincoln, actually a quote that comes out of the book of Proverbs. Lincoln used to say, better, be, better to be silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Quiet people are considered wise people until they speak and show their colors. So Job is simply saying, if you guys want to be wise, say nothing. Don't, with your words, add to my burden. And what is Job's burden? Well, God is attacking him, it seems. God is against him. Now, it's not true that God is against him, but he recognizes that everything has to be filtered through God. So here's this wonderful statement of 
trust and loyalty. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. May I resurrect that into your biblical theological framework. May I somehow remind you that this is a kingpin in our theology and philosophy. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, God has not really tried to slay Job. It just seems that way. God is trying to purify Job. You said I thought he was blameless. I said he was blameless, but he's not sinless. Who among us is sinless? And if you are not sinless, why are you surprised that God tries to purify you? In fact, God has taken an oath. He has predestined you, if you're a believer, to be just like Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8. Read verse 29. If you're a believer, God has committed himself to an oath and a course of action from which he will not deviate. He wants to make you like Jesus. I thought God wanted to make me happy and healthy and wealthy. Well, he's going to bless you in time, but he's more concerned about making you like Jesus. Here's the problem. I'm more concerned about being healthy and wealthy and comfortable. So God says, I want to make you like Jesus. I am so pleased with my son. I want to populate eternity with people just like him. You are saved in Christ. Now I want Christ to be seen in you. That's what God's doing in your life. Why me? Why this trial? Answer, he wants to make you like Christ. Doesn't make it fair. Doesn't make the trial right. There's no justice in what Job is going through, but there is purpose. And that's what we must see. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Look at Job chapter 14. Verse 1, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He's already told us that his life is short. Uh, the metaphors the Bible uses are so telling. It's like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. It's like the weaving shuttle out of control, spinning and spinning so quickly. It's like the shadow cast by the sun that is gone by the evening dark. And yet these few days are full of trouble. Not only that, but when you jump down to verse 5, man's days are determined. You've decreed the number of his months, and you've set limits he cannot exceed. So here I am bound in by these limits. My days are short, and they're full of difficulty. And so here's the next question, verse 10, or statement, actually. Man dies and is laid into the ground. He breathes his last and is no more. And then he says in verse 14, if a man dies, will he live again? You say, that sounds like despair. Right on. That's exactly where he is. I love the words of the theologian Francis Anderson, who said Job's utterances seem to oscillate between hope and despair. A uniform mood cannot be imposed on them, nor a steady trend be found among them. However, we detect in this present speech, that is in chapter 14, 
a movement to a calmer, clearer, and more confident position. You have to understand that the revelation of God is called progressive. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, God gives us a little bit of light. And throughout the scripture, the unveiling scroll of the word of God, there is greater light given, progressive revelation, which means at this point in time, if indeed this is one of the first books ever written, the light that God had given man on the whole concept of resurrection was somewhat small. And you see that in Job's writings. He's grappling with the whole concept of resurrection. But he's beginning to see the light. If a man dies, will he live again? And the answer from many people is no. Now we get to the light of the New Testament and we say, absolutely. It's appointed in a man once to die, after this the judgment. We are eternal beings with a living soul that shall never die. But Job is wondering. But then he says this, all the days of my hard service, NIV uses the word service, Hebrew word is warfare, conflict, struggle. All the days of my life are a battle. And yet, I will wait for my renewal to come. There's the glimmer of hope. There's the one star on the dark horizon. That's the encouragement that begins to come from the pen of Job. Now, he's going to oscillate still up and down, but now he's beginning to grab on this idea of hope and renewal. And what does he say? I've got to learn to wait. Life is a waiting game. And that's why I want to spend some time this morning taking some other scriptures that teach us how to wait. How do we wait? What's involved in this thing called waiting? Let me direct you to Psalm chapter 5 to start with. Psalm chapter 5, and you may not have time to grasp the import of every verse, but I hope you jot down the reference and go back to study them in further detail. The psalmist says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in what? So waiting involves expectation. We are to wait expectantly. And that has the idea of hope. There is some enthusiasm, anticipation in the midst of our waiting. By the way, this verse doesn't say that you have to read your Bible every morning, but I think it emphasizes the fact that you should start out with the Lord every morning. Some of you read, do your Bible reading at night, and that's fine. But I encourage you to give every day to God at the beginning. Based on this verse, lift up your prayer requests and then wait with expectation throughout the day for God to do some amazing thing. We wait expectantly. Secondly, we wait confidently. This verse, Psalm 27, says, Wait for the Lord and be strong and take heart. Take courage. Be encouraged. Show some confidence. Wait on the Lord. So often, we lose that aspect of hope that includes assurance. Our American definition of hope 
is a wish. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, but there's no confidence. But the hope in the Bible is both a wish and a confidence. My hope is in the Lord. It's my dream, it's my desire, and it is my confidence. I am to wait confidently. Why? Because God's word never fails. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. Don't put your hope in anything else. Everything else will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Trust another person, they will fail you. Trust a scheme, it will collapse. Trust the American monetary system. Oh, brother. Put your hope in something that will last. Put your hope in God. Trust in His Word. The confidence is in Him. Then we've got this idea of obedience. Wait obediently. <laughs> Some people have the concept that waiting means to do nothing, right? Waiting is akin to laziness, slothfulness. What are you doing? I'm just waiting. What are you waiting on? I'm waiting on the Lord. How are you waiting? I'm watching TV, just waiting. Waiting. <laughs> Did you know that the word waiting is active? It's aggressive. What do you do? Expectantly, prayerfully, obediently. While you're waiting, you do the will of God. You follow the word of God. And wait for God to fulfill every promise he has ever made. We are to wait patiently. And this is the word that seems so obvious. But the idea of waiting means that someone else is in control. And you must yield to their agenda. There are two big virtues needed to wait well. Humility and hope. Humility says, I'm not in control. Hope says, this will turn out well. If your hope is in the Lord, then you can bow before him as the sovereign God. And well, you should. If your hope is in the Lord, it will be vindicated. I assure you, based on the authority of the word of God, and it may not happen in this life, but it will happen. I kind of wish at the end of Job that he wouldn't have gotten everything back twice as much as he had at the beginning. Because many people will say, yeah, Job suffered, but look at the end. I would suffer too if I knew I would get twice as much as I have right now. But that's not the point. And you read the book of Hebrews and you find out that some of the great men and women of faith never realized what they were hoping for until heaven. But God will vindicate his people and we are to wait patiently and we are to wait thankfully with gratitude. But here's the kicker. How long, O Lord, must I wait? This is the cry of the psalmist. When are you going to punish the people who persecute me. When are you going to change this world? When are you going to step in and stop the lawlessness? 
When, God, when? And what does God say? That's what we often hear. Nothing. We have his promises, but we want him to respond right now. Listen to Isaiah. This is amazing. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Did you know it's impossible for God to hide his face from you? In one sense, he's omnipresent. He cannot not be aware. He knows everything about you and everything you do and everything you think. But this is metaphorically describing the fact that God's presence and power and intervention seem to be gone. When you and I are in the waiting room, we cannot find God. It seems like he has hidden his face from us. And so we need hope and humility. We need to put our trust in his word. Even as we cry out, as Job did, how long? How long? Now let me ask you this question. Why do we wait? Well, we could simply answer, we wait because God has told us to, and that's not a bad answer. But even more specifically, we wait because God blesses those who wait upon Him. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He longs to bless you. He's a God of justice. And by the way, justice came for Job, although it was a long time in coming. The whole concept of waiting means it may be a very long time. By the way, I think waiting has very little to do with time, but everything to do with hope. I can't wait five minutes for most things. But I know people who have waited for years because their hope is the, in the one who can never lie, and he is promised. How about this portion of Scripture from Isaiah? Do you know it? Have you not known? Have you not heard that the Almighty God, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, never gets tired? People get tired. Even young people stumble and fall. But the Lord, he never gets tired. And those who wait on the Lord are strong like he is. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, and they'll mount up with wings like eagles above the problems. And they'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Where do you get this endurance from waiting on God? How long do you have to wait until he answers? Or until you die? <laughs> That's a long time to wait. Yeah, life is about waiting. And yet in the end, he will bless and he will promise. How about this from Romans? Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. We're not happy to suffer, but we are excited about what suffering produces. What does suffering produce? Perseverance. Is that good? That's all about waiting. <laughs> and what does perseverance and waiting produce? Character. And what does character produce? Hope. And the next verse says, hope doesn't make us ashamed. Remember, God is committed to making you like Jesus, to transforming your character, and this is how he's going to do it. You need to grow up. 
I said that to you collectively because if I said that to you individually, you would hit me. <laughs> It'd be rather offensive, right? It's a little less offensive if I say to all of you, you've got to grow up. And I put myself, I say this to, to myself, maybe not as much as I should, but I see myself in the mirror and I, I say, you really need to grow up. And that's what God has committed to do in your life. He wants to grow you. How's he going to do it? Through trials. How do I get through my trials? Wait, persevere, character develop, hope. Have you ever seen one of these? It's actually the button I'm wearing on my lapel right now. I have not worn this button for 45 years. I went into my files to see if I could find it, and boom, there it was. And I put it on for the first time in 45 years, since 1973, when I went to a conference called Basic Youth Conflicts, led by a guy called Bill Gothard. Now, early on, I think that seminar was amazing. My own opinion is it got derailed and kind of went in some bad directions. But let's forget about that and go to the button. We were all given this button when we finished the conference, and this is what it means. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. So you wear this dumb button with a bunch of letters, and someone's going to stop you and say, what is that? And you say, well, it means, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And, and that's kind of a good message to share with other believers, right? That's a good message to share with your spouse, right? <laughs> but I thought about it. There's an even more important perspective that you and I need to grasp. Suppose God gave you the button and said to you, be patient with me because I've got a lot of work to do on you. I'm a long way from being done. Please be patient with me, God says to us, because I'm not finished with you yet. That's why you're still living. He's got some work to do in you, and he's got some work to do through you. And it is important for us to grasp this wonderful concept that as important as it is for the very thing that we're waiting for, it's even more important for the work that God wants to do in us while we wait. As important as the thing we wait for is the work God wants to do in us while we wait. Look at chapter 23, verse 10. What a, what a great portion of Scripture. And we've already used this, but we're going to keep coming back to it. One of my favorite verses in the whole book. But he knows the way that I take. 23.10. And when he has tried me or tested me, what's the rest of it? I shall come forth as gold. The gold is your faith. The fire is the suffering. And the furnace is the waiting. In sixth grade, Mrs. Hicks would put math problems up on the blackboard and call the students to come up and work the problems out in front of the whole class. That was horrible. I never did my homework in sixth grade. And... So I had a friend, Jeff Nixon, we were partners in crime as much as you can be in the sixth grade. And if we could and when we could, we would get the answers to those questions. So if called upon, 
we could write the answer. I don't remember if this ever happened exactly like this, but I could imagine myself going up to that board. Mrs. Hicks says, Donnie, go take care of the problem on the board. So I go up there and I write 34. And she says, that's the right answer. How did you get it? Jeff. <laughs> well, I didn't want to say that. So yeah, I could imagine myself saying, well, well, it's the right answer. It doesn't make any difference how I got it. We're after the right answer, aren't we? That's the right answer. And she would say, no, the purpose of this exercise is to teach you that you get the answer by working through the problem. There's a bunch of answers in this book that are next to useless if you don't work through the problem. And that is the book of Job. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to those in acute waiting rooms of life, I pray for mercy and grace and wisdom and strength and hope and humility and friends who will weep with those who weep. Perhaps, Lord, we're in this room because we haven't yet acknowledged that we've got a problem. Or maybe you just want to shine your light through us in the midst of darkness. Either way, come and meet with those in acute waiting situations. Give us patience and hope and humility and gratitude and confidence. Lord, us help us, Lord, help us to live obediently until that day when you seek to vindicate our way. And we'll give you all the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.